How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. China's moving full speed into clean energy from solar, wind, and other renewable sources. Chinese manufacturers, for example, have flooded the global market with so many solar panels that prices have plunged, and solar is now competitive with fossil fuels in some markets. That's good news for U.S. consumers, but it's bad news for U.S. solar companies, several of which have been driven offshore or out of business entirely. Does Beijing's power juggernaut present threats or opportunities for America? Can China actually create new technologies, or will it continue to refine existing ones and make them more affordable? In the next hour, we'll discuss clean energy in China and what constraints it might face from rising commodity prices or its own political system. We'll also take a look at demands from China's rising middle class for clean air and clean water. I'm Greg Dalton, and for this Climate One conversation, we're joined by our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco and four experts. Peter Greenwood is Executive Director of Strategy at China Light and Power, an energy concern based in Hong Kong. Stephen Lieb is joining us via video conference, and he's co-author of the new book, Red Alert, How China's Growing Prosperity Threatens the American Way of Life. Alex Wong is a visiting professor at the UC Berkeley School of Law and formerly with the Natural Resources Defense Council in Beijing. And Julian Wong is attorney with Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati, the Silicon Valley law firm, and a former advisor at the U.S. Department of Energy. Please welcome them to Climate One. Um, Alex, let's, let's begin with you. Um, let's begin a couple years ago and set the big stage. Uh, in Copenhagen, the world came together for climate negotiations. There was going to be a global deal. It didn't happen. And some people think that China was a spoiler at the party. What's your view on the role that China played in Copenhagen? And then we'll move forward to today. Sure. Yeah, uh, I was there in Copenhagen a few years ago uh, with the team from uh, NRDC. And I think, um, you know, the Copenhagen negotiations really highlighted uh, some of the, the difficulties in basically coming to a global deal on climate change. I think what China's position at uh, Copenhagen was really they were emphasizing their domestic efforts to address climate change. And uh, that's something I've spent a lot of time studying. And I think that, you know, the global deal is one thing, but um, on in terms of China's domestic efforts, for a variety of reasons, for energy security reasons, for uh, pollution reasons, for social stability reasons, China, a few years before the Copenhagen negotiations, had really started to change the way it was addressing both clean tech, environmental protection, and so forth. And they've made some some real changes in terms of incentivizing governors and mayors to take action and, and putting more money into investment and so forth. And you've seen a lot of action that, that you know, we've read a lot of headlines about that. And and to that that extent that they're they're trying to to change the way they deal with the environment, there's been real real movement. And we'll get to that. But do you think that they, some people do, that they kind of scuttle the global deal to buy some more time to get ahead of the rest of the world? Yeah, I mean, in my, my personal view, I think both China and the U.S., you know, really... Um, did, had their you know, foot on the brakes. Right, they had a, their, their foot on the brakes. And, you know, both of those countries are very much responsible for 
for uh, climate issues, and you know they didn't they didn't do what it took to to make uh, make a deal. The U.S. is certainly a lot more responsible for historic emissions. Sure. Um, Stephen Lieb, you talk uh, uh, about Copenhagen, and you you th- what's your view on on the role that China played there? I think you have the the view that they were um, a little more proactive in in stopping what was uh, stopping the momentum in Copenhagen. Yeah, well, I think China, if you can hear me, I think I think. I think China wants to have it both ways. Uh, I think they want to be known as the uh, uh, country that is on the forefront of uh, uh, climate change and controlling climate change. I think Stern, in a recent interview, made that clear. I mean, he singled out China from, you know, those of you who might know the Stern Report. He's one of the original uh, authors of uh, the whole, I get an echo here with why I stop. Yeah, we're doing some experiments. So we're going to have a look. Uh, Stern is a very important guy in the whole climate change, and he has singled out China as one of the motivators or one of the single, uh, the country doing the most to control climate change. I think it's far more complicated. I don't think China does anything uh, with the world's interest in hand. I think they do everything with China's interest in hand. I don't think they want their hands tied in any way. I think they are almost entirely motivated by what's good for China. And in this regard, climate change is very much a mixed bag for them. Much more important to them is the issue of resource scarcity. Uh, they've known that oil is a strategic commodity uh, at least for the last 13, 14 years. Uh, and they've done a lot to go after oil. They've written articles about coal peaking uh, as, as, as late as 2000, as early as 2005, 2006. You can find academic peer-reviewed articles with Chinese uh, academicians saying that sometime by 2020 or 2030, coal will have peaked. They know they have a very, very serious energy problem that is not necessarily motivated by climate considerations, but rather by resource scarcity. They are seeking, in my opinion, to control solar. Last reports are they had 45% of that market up from nearly zero a few years ago. Uh, the collapse of, what you referred to, the collapse of U.S. solar companies is evidence of that. Solyndra, I think, was a red herring. Uh, there may have been fraud there, but basically they could not compete with China. If you really want an eye-opening chart of a stock, look at Evergreen Solar from over $100 a share in 2008 to $0.03 today. It's bankrupt. It has nothing to do with fraud. It has everything to do with China underbidding. They've taken a chapter from our own playbook, incidentally. Uh, at the end of when the transistor was invented, I think in 1948, one reason we became so great at manufacturing it is that our own defense department placed massive orders and allowed us to go up a learning curve. We created Moore's Law, etc. China has done very similar things in the solar market. Ditto for wind. By virtue of their control of rare earths, they have a massive position or a future position in wind technology, wind turbines, which require permanent magnets, which you can only get from those heavy rare earths. As far as climate change itself goes, I think it's a totally mixed bag for China. 
Obviously, the pollution that you see in the major cities is horrible. No one's going to dispute that. But I refer people to an article that was written in Nature magazine uh, maybe about a year ago or with, yeah, roughly a year ago. It was penned by, I would say, 12 or 13 Chinese academicians. And it talked about the impact of climate change on China. China's biggest problem, in my opinion, is water. It's been a problem for the last 50 or 60 years. The south of China has a lot of water. The north of China has a dearth of water. They've been engaged a 50-year project or more to get water from the south to the north. What, if anything, is going to defeat China long term? It's not going to be uh, what these hedge fund people are saying about their banks, etc. This is nothing. I mean, it, 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 you know, I'm not going to get into that. But what would defeat China would be water, this issue of water. Now, if you read this article in Nature, so I'm not talking about Mother Jones here. I'm talking about, you know, one of the finest uh, uh, general scientific magazines in the world. If you read this article, what you'll see is a totally mixed bag. And if you read it very, very carefully, you will see that it's more likely than not that climate change right now, I mean, I can read you passages from the article if I have time later on, but you can do it yourself. Climate change right now is more likely to benefit China vis-a-vis water and precipitation patterns throughout the country than it is to hurt China. In other words, western part of China... Uh, uh, some of the drought-stricken areas of China are likely to get more water as a result of climate change, whereas some of the parts of China that are prone to flood are likely to get less precipitation. That's not a strong motivator for a country whose major problem is water to do something about climate change. Now, there's a lot of people who would... Let me jump in here, Stephen. they, of course, want to conserve energy because of resource constraints. But it has nothing to do with climate change, in my opinion. Well, there's, we, we could talk about the, the water towers of Asia and the mil- reducing glaciers in the Tibetan Plateau. There's some people think there will be less water, certainly, in the, in the major rivers. Let's, let's bring in Julian Wong. Uh, you were an advisor to the Department of Energy. You know, what's China's, the role of energy in China's overall uh, strategic development plan? And you know, do you agree with, with Stephen about sort of some of these motives of controlling resources? Uh, well, yes. You know, so, you know, energy is pivot, a pivotal issue in terms of China's economic development. I mean, I think as Stephen rightly points out, uh, the scarcity issues are high in the minds of, of China's leaders. You know, they are utterly reliant on fossil fuels. Uh, and when you talk about oil resources, that's, you know, at least you know, half of that is coming from overseas. And that percentage is growing, especially as uh, – car consumption continues to rise at an astronomical rate. Uh, so there's, there's a high degree of insecurity. Uh, if you look at their 12 five-year plan that has been announced uh, recently this year, uh, earlier this year, you'll see that there are quite a number of sections that deal with, with the nexus of energy and environment and security. Uh, you know, they, they are moving forward with uh, ambitious plans to diversify the fossil fuel that use um, and, uh, and they are investing a lot in the industries that, that support these, uh, the use of alternative energy and putting real money behind it. Uh, and so, you know, I think security is certainly one, one reason to invest in alternative energy. Uh, but another reason is um, also 
uh, in the broader context of China's economic development, moving towards uh, advanced manufacturing, uh, t- uh, high technology, diversifying away from labor-intensive uh, uh, industries to, to more knowledge-intensive industries. Uh, and, and, and it's also certainly an environmental aspect. Uh, you know, I think um, certainly, you know, if you, t- you talk about uh, the, the livability of cities in China, uh, you know, at one point, the World Bank rated you know, uh, the top tw- looked at the top 20 most polluted cities in the world, and 16 of them were from China. Uh, and what that translates to in a very tangible way that rings home for the Chinese government is the, ups, the, the sort of disturbance and disruption of social stability. Because ultimately, this Communist Party is, is in power as long as the people uh, allow it to be. And if, um, if you're getting protests by, by citizens, by residents, uh, on very fundamental needs, um, that's going to that's gonna get the, the attention of, of leaders. And we're starting to see that, as Alex can, can, can well do, uh, describe for us, uh, since he's been at, on the ground for, for quite a number of years in Beijing and dealing with uh, local pollution issues. Uh, so it's, it's a complex equation. There, there are many reasons for it. I do think that there, uh, China's quest for clean energy and alternative energy is real, but, but we have to understand that there are a lot of reasons to it, and sometimes they're competing and sometimes contradictory. Well, let's get Peter Greenwood in here. You, uh, your company is a direct investor in energy generation and transmission in China, uh, so you deal with the, the people who are trying to satisfy growing demand for China. Is, is it... Uh, for social stability? Do they really care if it's clean or they just want energy at any cost because demand is growing so fast? Well, that's already quite a few themes in one question. Yeah. And, and Stephen himself uh, aired a, 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 a number of strands of thought uh, that are almost difficult to bring back together to a sort of single line of reasoning. I perhaps just come in very quickly behind Julian and say that obviously as a a power company in Asia. We're the largest external investor in renewable energy in in China. We're also the largest investor in uh, renewable energy in India. So we do see these things from the ground up. In terms of China itself, always a risk, I think, to speak of China as though it was a single voice, a single mind. You wouldn't speak of the USA as a single voice and a single mind. I'm not sure that, that China necessarily deserves to be thought of in that sense as well. Over all of the years that I've been in Hong Kong, and without turning myself into a sort of amateur business Beijing watcher, I find that most of the time, your, the sense of your observations, is that most of what the Chinese government does can be traced back fundamentally to a determination to maintain the paramountcy of Chinese Communist Party leadership. And I think that that then has two sub-themes, one of which is a recognition that doing so depends on promoting prosperity and stability, And the second thing is uh, defending uh, Chinese sovereignty. And I think that's particularly sensitive for for cultural and historical reasons that I think will be very well known to to many of the people in in this audience. What does that lead to? I think in the area which we're discussing, it leads to a couple of things. First is an overwhelming preference for national measures to tackle environmental problems as opposed to Uh, subjugation or subordination, a better word, to international architecture. I think there's a a sovereign issue there. The second thing is, to go back to my prosperity and stability theme, less than 12% of Chinese land is suitable for arable farming. One of the terrific achievements of 
the PRC government since the Second World War has been to feed its population, and even at times that's been problematic. Growing population, yeah. It's only been in the last two years that the majority of China's population is to be found in the urban centers as opposed to the countryside. Most, uh, the majority of the Chinese population, including the leadership, will be only one or two generations away from uh, the rural existence. What does that mean? It means that they are genuinely sensitive to their environment. They have a genuine awareness of the importance of preserving uh, China's natural environment, uh, in part to preserve China's ability to feed itself uh, and in part to preserve a way of life, social stability uh, and prosperity in the rural areas. So I think they have a a genuine commitment uh, to the environment, but on their terms. And certainly the people that we meet, this is down to, to county, municipal, provincial level, Uh, the people that we meet seem to be genuinely bought in to the protection of the environment uh, as the right thing to do. And certainly post-Kyoto, we have not seen any slackening uh, in the Beijing government's support and promotion of clean energy in China. If anything, we've seen an acceleration. Some of the audience here will remember that there was a sort of notion that if Copenhagen failed, the, the, the drive to, to, to cleaner energy, the drive to tackle carbon emissions, notably from power generation, would, would fall away. On the contrary, we've seen post, uh, post-Copenhagen uh, in China an acceleration of the, of the drive towards cleaner energy. And in some press reports, the New York Times and others, uh, there's a sense that China is, is running away with clean energy leadership. Uh, uh, I'd like to ask uh, Julian, you know, is that overblown sometimes, that China can do no wrong, sort of the techno-optimism? If you read Thomas Friedman and some others, China's going clean in a big way and they're running away with the prize. Is it... Yeah, you know, I think it's funny because I think if you had asked the same question maybe two years ago, three years ago, you, 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 you meet with blank stares, you know. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's only very recently that uh, the world has come to realize that, oh, yeah, you know, China is actually making quite a bit of investments in clean energy, um, and the, the question, I guess, is, you know, are they, you know, are they creating a, you know, are they far ahead? You know, are they, are they leading the rest of the world? And, you know, I think it depends on what numbers you look at and how you, what, what criteria you use to evaluate that. Uh, one, one measure could be just looking at sheer investments, uh, sheer money being, being, being channeled into it, into clean energy, alternative energy. Uh, and another aspect could be looking at, um, uh, the, num- the, the number of gigawatts of, of clean energy infrastructure uh, that they're deploying. Uh, and I think on, on both those counts, just in, uh, you might argue that, yeah, they are doing, uh, they're as, as impressive as any other country. Uh, but then if you dig a little, a little further and you see, okay, well, you know, are they innovating? Are they coming up with the, the, the world's cutting-edge technology? You know, are, you know uh, are, are the assets that they're deploying, if locally made, are they the most efficient? Um, are they durable? Um, are they high quality? Um, then you might get a different answer. You know, you might see that, um, well, you know, you know, at least at, at one point a couple of years ago, the wind turbines that were installed in, 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 in Chinese wind farms were perhaps, you know, uh, you know, maybe 20% less efficient than uh, the most efficient European turbines. Uh, that's just one data point. Uh, you might may talk about the durability um, uh, of um, the wind turbines themselves, you might talk about, uh, and now in most most recently the high speed rail incident, where you know 
they've been touting this, you know, the, the build-out of the most extensive infrastructure of bullet trains going faster than any train in the world. Uh, and and I, I've sat on it, and it's really impressive, uh, and maybe you have as well. Uh, but what, what you're finding out is that, you know, some, you know, some aspects of safety have been probably compromised. Um, you know, there was a big crash this summer, uh, and then, and then, you know, we're starting to see basically cracks in the system. Uh, and the question is, is, is that a one-off case or is that symptomatic of this, in, uh, uh, of, of the massive scale and pace of build-out across other kinds of infrastructure? Will we see, uh, similar kinds of issues? And, and, you know, the consequences can be scary. Think about, um, take for instance, China's build-out in nuclear. Right? They're building out at a, such a phenomenal pace. You know, they're gonna, they build 40 gigawatts by, you know, by, you know, the next 10 years or less. Uh, and, um, and the consequence of a, just even a small accident can be scary. Uh, and so I think, you know, you know, it, it, just to go back to your question, it depends how you look at it. And I think, uh, even if you take, if you, even if you stand for the point that they are, they are far ahead, I think it's, it's good to look in the horizon of what potential risks are looming. Alex Wong uh, mentioned, Peter mentioned earlier, and Julian, some of the the, uh, the protests that have happened. Let's talk about the sort of the popular pressure, the, the middle class that wants clean air, clean water. Uh, you were close to that in, sure. in with NRDC in Beijing. You know, is that really uh, a, a minority voice, or is it really pushing the government to do some of these things that are also in their own economic uh, sure. interests and the party's own interests? Uh, I, th- I think that's a really important development in China right now, and. If you read the headlines about China, you've seen major protests almost on a weekly basis. Just in this past summer, there was um, a major protest with 12,000 people in northeast, the northeast city of, of Dalian. Uh, there was a protest at a solar plant. They're going to bring these, and, and sort of these are just the ones that make the international press. You know, if you look at the Chinese press, there are many more, and, and there are many more that, that don't get reported. And, that is is obviously coming because people are getting more wealthy. They're uh, they're getting better educated about environmental issues, and they realize that uh, this is having uh, impacts on, on their health, on their children's health. Uh, there have been reports about the birth defects due to due to pollution, and so it's creating a lot of um, of uh, protests and social instability. And this sort of links into what Peter was saying about one of the top priorities, which is one of the top government priorities is sort of social stability, maintaining the stability, uh, social and political stability. And so I think the the positive side of it is that the government has been responding, particularly to the, to the, the accidents and the most severe incidents that have driven people to the streets. The negative side of that is that it takes... A problem, often it's, they wait until a problem has reached a certain level where it reaches the threshold of instability that something gets done about it. So, so I think in terms of governance, um, you know, I think a lot needs to be done there to kind of basically be even more responsive to, to public demand. Peter Gilbert, you want to jump in on that? Yeah, I just wanted to, as, as I say, I, I compared to, to the others on the panel, I, I look at these things, as I say, really from sort of ground level. Uh, and I was taking up Alex's point about governance. I mean, let me give a very specific example of the way in which things are evolving. Um, ten years ago, we had a power station in one of the provinces of China. 
coal-fired power station. It was the only power station in that province with flue gas desulfurization. When we reported uh, sulfur emissions levels, we were nonetheless the highest reported sulfur emitter in that province, although we were the only ones with flue gas desulfurization. Are you saying that they fudged their numbers? And what I'm saying, well, I'm saying a little bit more than that, Greg, uh, is that we then had a request from the relevant provincial authorities to, to sort of change our numbers uh, because uh, it was making everybody else's numbers look uh, unbelievable. Now, that, that type of thing in our experience, is no longer happening. And that is a notable and you know, visible, and I think, as far as we're concerned, incontestable change in environmental governance in China. I think Alex would be absolutely right in suggesting uh, a long way to go, but I, I think there is no doubt that governance standards on environmental issues are improving extremely rapidly in China, probably, if, if I may say so, Alex, for the, exactly the sorts of reasons that you've that you've addressed, is that the Chinese government know that they have to have effective policies in this area to respond to growing middle class and social concern, and that you can't have effective policies without some, some reliable data on which to base those policies. And we'll get Stephen here in a minute. This raises this question of what's sometimes called adaptive governance. The Chinese government has encountered some huge crises before, and they've sort of learned from them, dealt with them, and keep moving on, uh, whether it's, it's financial crises, environmental crises, et cetera. They have a very resilient form of government uh, that learns and seems to be, be going forward, whether Julian or Alex would like to comment on I, I, I think that's a, that's a really important point because – you know, one of the big questions that a lot of academics have asked about China is, well, why have they been able to survive when a lot of other authoritarian states have, have not survived? And, and part of it is this issue of how they've been responding to the problems that crop up. And I think for anyone who's lived in China, you know how fast things are changing. I think it's, it's shocking for Americans who spend some time in China to, to know how, how fast things are changing. And, you know, just to give an example on this, this data point, I mean, uh, it has been widely acknowledged that f- false data was a problem. One of the things that you know, uh, some central government officials I've talked to have been trying to do, they're actually trying to game the gamers. Sort of, They're s- sort of assuming a lot of the local data is false, and they've tried to counter by not using that data but creating formulas based on how much coal is used and other things to try to get at the real answer and try to try to game the, you know, basically try to counter the gaming. And so there's this back and forth, and, you know, the local governments will figure out a way to try to game those formulas, but I think it's it's kind of a back and forth that is trying to, slowly narrowing the, the range of, the, the kind of room for, for the sort of gaming. I, again, I, I think the, the problems are still substantial, but I think there's, certainly effort to, to fix them. And speaking of local governments, the, the 12th five-year plan that was mentioned uh, has some very specific incentives for innovation, for clean energy, in which uh, local officials now have a, their promotions and their bonuses are dependent partly on, on cleaning up uh, or reducing, decoupling economic growth from carbon emissions. So let's talk about that. I want to get Stephen in here about, uh, about that, that as well. So who'd like to comment, Julian, on the 12th five-year plan? Yeah, well, <clears throat> that has been, uh, you know, one of the, 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 the promising points, I think, of, of governance in general in China, that, that local officials, uh, provincial officials, are no longer just judged by economic growth uh, alone, uh, at least on paper. You know, I think until this point, particularly, uh, certainly ever since 
1949, uh, the people's formation of the People's Republic, I think the emphasis has always been on economic development because that, again, is tied to social stability. And so there's been this GDP growth fetish, I think, is, is one way to put it. Uh, and, and, and the consequences, obviously, have been massive in terms of all these environmental consequences we talked about. Uh, and I think it's, it's in years past where we, you know, the leaders have, have realized that this growth model is not sustainable. Uh, I believe it was in the mid-2000, like 2005, 2004 maybe, uh, there was a very interesting experiment to come up with a metric called the green GDP, uh, whereby uh, you, you took your, your GDP as, as conventionally calculated, but then you sort of adjusted it for environmental damage. Uh, and the valuation and formulas of, of how you actually adjust for that is complex. And it was an experiment. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, while the intentions were noble uh, and, and, and quite innovative in, in, in the global context, to be, honest, to, to be frank, uh, uh, you know, there were voices uh, in the political system that basically put an end to it. Uh, and, and was business as usual. Uh, you're seeing elements of that resurface in, in this five-year plan, you know, trying to move towards a, a human-oriented growth model, as they call it. Uh, and, um, but we'll have to see. You know, I think it's, it's hard to turn a, a big ship around when you're so used to this sort of mode of growth, and, and the incentives are so entrenched to, to reward GDP growth, toward, uh, jo- uh, you know, uh, to create jobs at, at, at every expense. Um, It'll be interesting to see how uh, China is able to, to, to sort of refine this growth model to make it more reflective of other social. Sure, problems. Alex Wong. Yeah, I mean, wh- one interesting piece of background about what Julian is saying here is I mean, the, the incentives that Julian is referring to is you know you have to imagine China as almost like a, a large corporation with kind of departments because from the top there's a sort of system of bureaucratic evaluation where governors and mayors have incentives for growth. Uh, you know, there's sort of like profit targets. They have stability targets. They have one-child policy targets. And the interesting thing in the last five years is that they've added these environmental objectives. So now governors have to respond to those targets as well. Uh, the innovation point that Greg mentioned is actually interesting. I've, I've looked at a few of these the, the sheets of uh, the criteria, and they actually have innovation points in their evaluation criteria. So they're kind of trying to incentivize this this favorable behavior, but they're... Uh... And there's a funny story where sometimes uh, a municipality or an official will get points for innovation, and then they won't do the activity again because they're not going to get any more points. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Talk right. about gaming exactly. the system. Exactly. Uh, Alex Wong is visiting professor at UC Berkeley School of Law. Our other guests today at Climate One are Julian Wong, attorney with Wilson Sonsini in Silicon Valley, Peter Greenwood, executive director of strategy for China Light and Power Group in Hong Kong, and joining us via video conference is Stephen Lieb, author of the new book, Red Alert. Steve, let's get your reaction to this. What they're describing is a very pragmatic, self-interested policy of a, a government that wants to maintain stability, stay in power. Sounds just like the U.S. It's not that different, and that you are, are impugning some kind of dark motives to this. Well, I... You know, basically, one difference between China and the U.S., uh, and it's a strong difference, is that China's a meritocracy, much more so than the U.S. In the U.S., I think about 40% of our Congress people are lawyers. The only lawyer that I know of right now in China is uh, the man that's likely to succeed, Wan. He is a lawyer, but he also has a Ph.D. in economics. 
Most of the Chinese leaders have PhDs in electrical engineering, chemical engineering, etc. I think we can probably count on one hand the number of PhDs in the sciences that are running our government. These guys are pretty smart. And in order to succeed in China, you have to be pretty smart. And there's a tradition that goes back a thousand years. I think one of the things that, and I'm speculating, that these leaders do realize is that we live in a world of resource scarcity. And yes, I think they're desperately interested in clean energy. But they're interested in clean energy because they know that fossil fuels, including coal, are finite. And they've been aware of this. And they are trying to take steps to maintain, as people have pointed out, their own sovereignty. Their emphasis is to carry these resources. And no one has mentioned heavy rare earths. I mean, that is a very, very big deal because you cannot make wind turbines without heavy rare earths. Silicon, I mean, if it weren't for the fact that silicon and solar was such a valuable technology, I think long ago we would have had policies uh, criticizing or restricting China's uh, uh, financing of their solar in- industry. Our solar industry, as you pointed out earlier, is gone bust. Their solar industry is going very strong. This weekend, when I was driving home, hearing my hometown jets lose, I heard an advertisement from Yingling. This is a Chinese solar company losing money, but growing their revenues probably by 30% a year. How do you do that? I mean, every candle they sell, they tend to lose money on it. They do it because they are uh, incentivized by the state and incentivized, you know, a great to, to, to a great extent. And their stock price about $3, $2. They could care less, in my opinion. And you can pick any number of companies that are exactly like that. We live, I mean, today, one of the best buy-side analysts I know sent me a report on copper. And, you know, how much, how many copper projects were coming on stream in the next, you know, five or ten years. Because copper, I believe, is a very scarce commodity. And I'm not going to go into that right now. But any copper project you grow up is going to have assumptions about oil and assumptions about other resources. They're absolutely integral. And in fact, variable costs for copper have more than tripled since 2004, almost in line with oil. So it's almost senseless to say you're going to get an IRR of, let's say, 15%, unless you know what oil prices are going to be. As we sit here talking about China today, the benchmark for oil in the world, Brent crude, is trading over $110 a barrel. Yet, $35 trillion of the world's gross world product in the Eurozone and the United States is doing nothing. Nothing. Now, if oil goes up to $150 or $170, that's going to impact all these projects. And sooner or later, it's going to be game over. Sooner or later, there won't be enough oil or be so resource scarce that, you know, if you have a closed system, it's as strong as your scarcest resource. It's not clear to me, for instance, that Brazil will ever get oil from the uh, those uh, findings that they have because it takes a lot of oil to get oil. Norway has a report out just today saying that they're having a devil of a time with drilling costs. 
we as Americans, in my opinion, better wake up to this very, very quickly because we don't have a whole lot of time. I think China has woken up. And answer your point about data, et cetera, yes, they probably know that their standards of living because of these resource scarcities are never going to, you know, get up to where we are right now. Now, I would advise everybody, this is an article, not mine. You, you, back in San Francisco, you have a professor at Stanford named Mark Jacobson, who almost two years ago wrote a very, very interesting article about what it would take to convert the world from non-renewable energies to renewable energies. And he had a list of uh, different projects that he was suggesting, a hypothetical article, but it was the lead story in Scientific American and very understandable. My take from the article, and I went through all the footnotes that he had in separate articles, etc., is that the major obstacle is it's going to take resources that we don't have. It's not clear that we have enough silver to build out solar. It's certainly not clear that we have enough rare earths to build out wind. And there are many other scarce materials that the Chinese appear to be aware of and appear to be accumulating in their effort for clean energy. Let's jump in here. And let's get uh, uh, Peter Greenwood. Your company is in the business of building uh, wind turbines, etc. Are you concerned about rare earths? So, so let's address the resource scarcity that Stephen's talking about, the inputs into renewable energy that China could drive yeah. up the price. Yeah. Um, we probably see, again, it, it, what you see depends on where you're standing. We probably see a world as slightly uh, differently from the way that, that Stephen describes. Two-part two, two answer to your question. First, at the, at the macro level, it is obvious that a country the size of China with economic development at its speed uh, with an overall shortage of indigenous resources does face and recognizes the problem of resource scarcity. Uh, but I don't think they're just tackling that problem by trying to sort of garner the world's resources. I think they're also clearly trying to tackle that problem by making better use of, of resources and I think the drive to, to cleaner energy is, is, is part of that response. As far as the the role that China is playing in, in the renewable energy space, and let's take wind turbines and, and solar panels, it's not actually necessarily a bad story for the rest of the world. Uh, wind turbine prices have fallen in the last couple of years by around about 20%. A lot of that is due to uh, the efficiency and scale of Chinese manufacturing. What does that do? It means that uh, wind projects that were previously uneconomical become economical. Sites that were previously not feasible become feasible. Subsidies that might otherwise have to be paid by Western and other governments can perhaps operate at, at lower levels. That's a beneficial story. Uh, similarly, for, for solar panels, um, the Australian government's uh, drive uh, for enhanced solar energy production in Australia will not be feasible without the benefit of cheap solar panels manufactured uh, in China and imported into Australia. So this, this isn't a bad story that, that, that China is, is becoming as, as dominant, as influential in the field of clean technology. It reduces the cost for everybody else and also... Uh, People concerned about climate change, which is a global concern, the lower the carbon emissions from China, the better everybody else 
uh, everybody else is. Do you think, Peter Greenwood, that China bends the international norms or trade rules in its aggressive uh, pursuit of market share in, in wind and solar? I'd be inclined to say to that, and I'll, uh, and I'll, I'll defer to a great deal of expertise, here, yeah. but I, I'd be inclined to say they don't bend them any more than anybody else does. Julian Wong? Complex question. No, um, I'm not sure I have the definitive answer for it. I mean, there's certainly a lot of suggestion uh, that, that the bender rules. But, you know, I, I, I make a, a slightly different point. I think there's been a lot of criticism about uh, subsidies, unfair subsidies, uh, over-subsidies of, of an industry that, that render U.S. companies uh, uh, uncompetitive. Um, and I think it's important to, to note that, you know, at one point in the conversation some years ago, we were saying that China was not doing nearly enough in clean energy. And now they're doing so much more. And we still give them flack. Too much, yeah. A second, a second part of that is that if you take a look at the fossil fuel industry and look at and the amount of subsidies that are channeled to the fossil fuel industry, they completely dwarf the amount of, of subsidies in the clean energy industry on a global basis. Uh, IEA was saying that... Uh, the interna- subsidies, international energy agency. international energy agency in Paris uh, was saying that uh, something like 400 billion, 400 to 500 billion dollars per year uh, have been in fu- subsidies have been funneled uh, to fossil fuels, and that's going to rise, and that doesn't count nuclear energy. Uh, it, it depends on where you start in nuclear energy. Is it is it you know is it is it clean or is it not clean? But 400 to some fossil fuels, and that's going to rise, and not nearly as much as going to clean energy. Julian Wong is an attorney with Wilson Sonsini in Silicon Valley. Uh, we are going to bring out a microphone right here and invite audience participation, and we'll form the line over there and welcome you to um, to present your comments and, and questions. I'll just while that's getting organized, um, and uh, we have an on deck seat right there. Um, one question is. When are we going to see some inbound Chinese investment into the U.S. clean tech sectors? Um, you know, what's been the experience so far? Uh, a lot of people remember in the 90s, Japan invested a lot of money, met a lot of resistance. A Chinese oil company did try to buy Unical. They were rebuffed, and that end, in the end went to a U.S. company. Let's talk about sort of inbound capital from, uh, from Chinese investors quickly. Um, Julian? Um, I think it's 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 a there's a tidal wave of of, of capital from China uh, that's that's looking for 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 investment on a global basis, uh, and and I think that uh, America at its peril uh, uh, shuts out Chinese capital because that capital is otherwise going to go to Europe or other markets, Africa perhaps. Uh, and I think there's a lot of good that can come, come with uh, of capital in terms, especially given the current economic climate domestically. Uh, obviously, there's sensitivities, but I think those can be managed. There's also hypocrisy. The U.S. complains about China's market not being open, and we kind of right. close off our market. Uh, let's go to the audience question. Yes, sir, please. Yeah, Peter, I'd like an update, I think, on the Shenhua project. Uh, I helped organize a, an event in Beijing in uh, 2003 on turning coal to liquid fuels using the Fisher Tropes project. Um, and I was wondering, they, the Chinese government put $6 billion into building that because, and, and it was given technology by the U.S. Department of Energy to do it because the U.S. Department of Energy said we're never going to get anybody to do anything with trying to turn coal into clean fuel in the United States. Let's let China do it. Do you know anything about where – I know that it, it went online about two or three years ago. Yeah. Um, 
It would be misleading and wrong for me to say that I know too much about the, the, the current status of the project. But that's quite an interesting example, is that, that clearly the Beijing government had uh, arrived at a position a few years back where, on the one hand, they saw themselves as possessing enormous reserves of, of indigenous coal. And I take Stephen's point about views can differ on when peak coal is going to, uh, to occur in, in, in China. And they saw themselves under increasing international, indeed growing domestic pressure, uh, to generate energy in a lower carbon intensity way. So they put those two things together, those, 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 those two imperatives were brought together in projects like the Shenhua project, not the only one, I think, that they, they looked at at the time. I think that one of the things that we're seeing, and, I'm, and you know, I may well be, be proved wrong on this, is that I think that there is considerably less impetus in the mainland at the moment, and for that matter elsewhere in the world, to move towards uh, highly advanced clean coal technologies and CCS. I think carbon capture and sequestration. Sorry, carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, that was very much a sort of hot subject five or six years ago. I think we're seeing an increasing emphasis on uh, conventional renewables uh, and scaling them up. So larger wind turbines, larger solar farms, uh, increasing rollout of hydro. Uh, and I think particularly uh, in the U.S. is that you're looking more and more at unconventional gas. Uh, that coupled with China's drive towards an enhanced nuclear program seems to suggest to me that the move towards the rapid and commercial scale deployment of clean coal technology has slowed very, very considerably in favor of the alternatives. And this coming from a company that has a lot of coal generation. Yeah, your, your company makes a lot of electricity with a lot of coal in Asia. I think it's fair to, to say, Greg, that uh, five or six years ago as a company, we were looking very closely at CCS technology, CCS projects, uh, our own commercial, and indeed our shareholders' emphasis has notably moved away uh, from the world of, of, of carbon capture and sequestration, the, the advanced clean coal technologies. The, the myth of clean coal. Uh, yes, that's the next audience question, please. That's actually a great segue to my question. Um, my name is Clara Vondrich from Climate Works, and I think I ask this question every time I'm over here at a, at a Commonwealth Club event. What do we do about Chinese coal? Um, you know, Climate Works as an organization favors a policy suite of reasonable tools like efficiency, a ramp of, of renewables, but all of the um, you know, pro projected coal increases, um, new coal-fired power in China, threatens to overwhelm all of those gains that we make with those reasonable policies. Peter, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're in the coal business. <laughs> well, I think I, I ought to say, uh, first of all, uh, and I'm sure that was uh, also in the back of your mind, is in that global context, do not uh, underestimate the potential in, uh, consequences of Indian economic growth, which similarly could well be uh, largely coal-powered. And the same way that uh, Stephen has been talking about that sort of drive to secure resources, uh, increasingly we're seeing Indian companies reaching out, certainly in my region, to try and, and secure upstream coal resources. So we, we, we're talking about China today, but just bear in mind that coming behind that particular behemoth uh, lies a, a second Asian giant. Uh, but is China light and power going to move away from coal to other sources of generation? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, no. Straight question, straight answer. Why? Because with the current state of technology, 
the current state of the societies and the, and the economies within which we operate in Asia, it is not possible for the foreseeable future to meet the legitimate needs of Asia's people for power through means other than those which will remain dominated by coal probably until the middle of this century. That's not to say, absolutely not to say, that you know, renewables don't play an increasing role, nuclear, you know, etc., cleaner technologies. But coal will remain the dominant source of energy for power generation in Asia you know, through my own lifetime and considerably beyond that. If China was to roll out the nuclear program that you just mentioned, it's around about 40 gigawatts by the end of this decade, and if they were to carry on with their, with their projected program, uh, which is a highly ambitious one, I haven't seen a, a single realistic projection which suggests that coal will represent less than 60% of China's generating capacity by the middle of the century. So China coal... Uh, so China, King Coal will King, remain King. King. King Coal in China. What I think that we will see is I don't think that we will see at the moment. I, I, I'm, I'm not optimistic about the rapid rollout of, of carbon capture and storage. But what we are seeing in China is a very, very considerable move to enhanced efficiency of coal-fired generation. You can no longer build a, a new subcritical coal-fired power station uh, in the mainland. Uh, when I started, a typical uh, unit in a Chinese coal-fired power station would be around 300, 350 megawatts. Uh, until four or five years ago, a standard size would be 600 megawatts. The, the, the required size now is 900 or 1,000 megawatts, supercritical, moving to ultra-critical plant, and they are making this plant themselves. So what you're seeing is king coal in China, but increasingly efficiently used for power generation, short of what you might call the, the, the groundbreaking, mold-changing, advanced, uh, truly advanced visionary coal technologies. Peter Greenwood is Executive Director of Strategy for China Light and Power Group. Let's get Julian Wong quickly and then our next audience question. Yeah, um, I was going to raise a point about supercritical and ultra-supercritical. And I guess in tandem with that policy, you know, the shutting down, the government yeah. managed to shut down inefficient plants. Uh, potentially one game, ch game changer down the road is natural gas. You know, there's been uh, a lot of talk about China's natural gas reserves, uh, particularly unconventional shale mm -hmm. gas reserves that might even eclipse that of the U.S., uh, and, and that, you know, depending on how you, you burn it, obviously it's not one, you know, it's not an exact replacement for, for base load coal power plant, uh, power, coal power, um, as, as currently used, but potential to offset a lot. Obviously, there are environmental considerations of how you harness those unconventional shale gas in an environmentally sound manner. Alex Wong, quickly, and then we'll get to our yeah, just a, a quick point. I mean, I, I think with that backdrop of, of the importance of coal going forward, I think, there's substantial things to still be done in, in energy efficiency and the way we use energy. And also, in I think given that coal will still be a big part of the energy mix, I think also just being transparent about the trade-offs we're making. Because I think right now the public is not fully aware of the kind of health trade-offs and other kinds of environmental trade-offs that, that come with that choice. I mean, if that's a choice society wants to make, they, they can make that. But I think we should be open about those trade-offs we're making. Thank you. Thank you for being patient. Next audience question, please. Hi, I'm Kristen McDonald with Pacific Environment. Switching to a different topic, I'm wondering to what extent 
China's uh, competing so well in green energy technology because either environmental regulations in China are more lax around manufacturing or because regulations are not being properly enforced. Peter, are there lax regulations in China? That's a very, it's a very general question and, and, and therefore a general answer risks to be meaningless. Uh, my own experience, my own observation, uh, but of course maybe I'm seeing the better side of things, uh, that wouldn't be entirely unsurprising, uh, is that uh, the standard of Chinese manufacturing facilities, uh, their environmental performance, is, is rapidly improving. I'm not going to say that in terms of health and safety legislation, environmental legislation, the workplace uh, regulation, uh, that the, uh, the standards either as written or indeed as implemented in the mainland match those which you may have here. But I think it would be equally wrong, and I don't think that, by the way, was the sense of your question, so I don't want to mis- mis- misrepresent the sense of the question. But these uh, clean energy facilities, they are not sweatshops. This is not a sort of 21st century clean energy version of, of, of the Victorian mill. Far, far from it. Alex Wong, fair to say, though, that the, the Chinese Environmental Protection Agency is nowhere near the teeth or the weight that even the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has, right? Right. I mean, you know, there, there's no comparison there. I think, you know, environmental regulation in the U.S. is much stronger. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking of the reasons why environmental law implementation is, is poor in China. And, you know, historically over the last few decades, there's there's been... And part of the problem has been that there's basically been very weak implementation. I think uh, the important point that a number of us have tried to make here is that that in part is changing. I think uh, to the extent that uh, the environmental protection helps investment in and economic growth by, by generating business for pollution reduction companies or clean tech companies, I think those things are moving forward very quickly. I think... Uh, a lot of the policies going on today are not primarily about environmental quality and health, so that leaves a lot of um, a lot of pollutants, a lot of problems unaddressed still. Let's have our next audience question. Yes, sir. Uh, <coughs> Gary, Malaysian. Uh, this week's issue of The Economist has a couple of articles that are interesting. Uh, one deals with a lot of loans that are major loans that are going bad, and the other uh, deals with... Uh, Hedge funds are majorly shorting the Chinese, a lot of Chinese companies. Somebody want to address that? Stephen, this is investing. This might be your realm about hedge funds shorting China and, and uh, troubles in the financial sector. Well, I think these are probably not the same hedge funds that were uh, buying uh, mortgage securities, etc. in 2008 because they're wrong. People... It, as I was saying earlier, I don't think the Chinese stock market is necessarily geared for the Chinese economy. I think that the best evidence for this was what China did in 2008-2009. They continued to grow at close to double-digit rates, and their market went way, way down. So I think what the hedge funds are doing, needs to be real estate, etc., is not indicative of anything that's happening in China. And if I can, I know you guys may not be able to hear me. I just want to emphasize one thing. Talked about new industries that China is investing in. According to estimates that I've seen, it depends on how you value the bond and the purchasing power parity. They are probably spending in the 
neighborhood are projected to spend in the neighborhood of about half a trillion dollars a year on these new industries. Many or most of them concerned with new energy. That means through 2015, they'll probably spend on the order of two and a half trillion dollars a year. That's the same amount of money, roughly, that we spent on the Second World War. They are taking this very seriously. They are taking it like a war. And as I pointed out earlier, I agree with all you're saying about coal. Coal is critical to China and will remain critical. But I can cite chapter and verse articles that Chinese scientists have written about coal peaking sometime in the next decade, 2020 to 2030. In fact, one was published in Energy Policy in 2009 and was authored by researchers at the China Center for Energy Economics. They know it, and we know it, and there's a lot of other estimates about that. I don't know whether we know it, but they know it. And the kinds of spending that they're doing right now, war-like spending, matches that. I think that we, as Americans, given that we're still paying sometimes $100 on the East Coast to fill up our gas tanks, given that median incomes in this country are falling by about 7%, better wake up. We need more than a helter-skelter approach to what we're doing in this country. We need more than a molecule which mines rare earths and sends them to China to be processed. And, you know, one reason I'm sorry to get on the soapbox, but I, you know, I don't know whether you can hear me or not, but one reason to write this kind of book that I wrote is not to make money, but to try and wake people up. We have real issues here. Thank you, Stephen. And, and, and China has real issues, and I think we have to wake up to them. I'm sorry if I got carried. Thank you, and appreciate, uh, thank you for, uh, all of you for working with this uh, sound situation. We decided that it would be better to try this than have Stephen fly out here, admit a bunch of carbon to come here and tell us. So this is <laughs> yes, the low right. the low carbon way of including Stephen. And thank you, Stephen, and thank you to our audience for, uh, for, for uh, understanding the situation. Let's have our next audience question, please. Yeah, David Lyon from The Economist Group. Um, at a meeting in Hong Kong last year, I was uh, somebody said that Given China's projected energy demand, given that they're still going to be reliant on coal, um, over the next 20 or 30 years, all of China's output, carbon output, could completely eradicate uh, the efforts from the rest of the world to reduce their carbon emissions. Now, do you agree with this, and do you think that there's any recognition by China's policymakers of the pivotal role that the country plays in averting a global a man-made climate disaster? Or do you think that um, we are, China will always play the blocking role in a future international um, agreement? This comes up a lot. You know, it's like no matter what we do in the States, China can blow the whole thing out of the water. Who wants to tackle that one? Well, I, I mean, there's Alex an interesting Wong. kind of premise on that question, which is sort of that we're doing all we can to, to address this problem, which is certainly not the, the case. I mean, I, yeah. I think that, that China, I mean, we've sort of gone over this, but I think, you know, China is placing the ability to grow uh, as sort of still the top priority, but it's basically making sure that it's not limited by resource constraints and and, and uh, kind of energy constraints, and it, it's proceeding on the clean tech uh Kind of policies on, on that basis, but I think that um, to think of them as, as playing a blocking role is is not correct. But then again, I think 
essentially you've highlighted you know, China is in a, a very large country that's continuing to grow massively, and I think uh, you know, more, much more needs to be done. Julian Wang, you worked with the U.S. Department of Energy collaborating with China. Is there an awareness that uh, the scale, that just the math, that Chinese coal can just blow the whole thing? Yeah, well, you know, I think the Chinese would probably, a Chinese government official would probably counter uh, with the following arguments. You know, I, and, and just as an aside, I think, yes, you know, I mean, we can argue about numbers and projections, and I think largely speaking, those sort of projections that you raise are are, are are within reason. You know, I think one could certainly uh, see that as plausible. Uh, but, you know, I think uh, a counter-argument would be uh, something you pointed out. Like, historically speaking, um, China is not responsible for the bulk of carbon dioxide that remain in the atmosphere. So there's a stock and flow issue, right? The stock of, of carbon dioxide in, in the atmosphere um, is largely accounted by developed, developed countries. Uh, and not developing countries. Ed, Ed Markey was here, and he said most of the carbon up there is red, white, and blue. <laughs> uh, and, and the second point is that, uh, you know, uh, uh, something that the developing countries have been using climate negotiations is the right to develop as a fundamental human right. And so if you look at per capita emissions, um, then China comes out to be, you know, one, one fourth or one fifth of that of the U.S. and India even lower, and so that they argue that oh, there's this much room for us to go before you can even start uh, talking about how much we have to curb gas emissions. But by that time, the planet's toast. So that, that could be academic. Anyone else? And, and you know, China actually, in fact, rolled that very argument out at Copenhagen at a panel of kind of state academy scientists that presented a sort of um, idea of sort of how China should be compensated to sort of make make up for this sort of carbon inequity. Right. And they sort of framed it in terms of each citizen having a sort carbon of climate, budget. carbon budget. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously that, that's not a satisfactory answer because then we still have the, the, the problem. Peter, Peter Greenwood, is there awareness on the, the math of Chinese coal in the macro sense? Clearly. Clearly, clearly there is. And we've seen this in, in, the, in the rollout of, of policies in the mainland. The national policies that have been uh, developed and published particularly since uh, the Copenhagen failure, show, I think, a, a genuine willingness to address the issue within on, on national terms rather than international terms. Mm-hmm. And I think, behind your question, David, I think, and everybody in this audience will have a sort of different sense, a different view of, of, of the future, it seems to me that it is unrealistic to expect that China's emissions of greenhouse gas will decline in absolute terms any time before the middle of the century. I think they will continue to increase in absolute terms. The significance of that increase, anybody can have a view on that. I think the other side of it is that the rate of increase will be considerably less than it would have been if China had pursued a business-as-usual path. Mm -hmm. So I think you, you, you will see the increase being moderated by the types of initiatives that we've, that, we've, that we've discussed today. But I believe increase there will be. And let's close. I just want to touch on a price on carbon. We haven't directly touched on the scenarios. If there's a price on carbon, how does that bend the curve? And I've heard Peter just said it's the curve will be not as bad as it could have been, but not, and I would say, uh, not the, at the rate that the science would say it needs, exactly. to, it needs to happen. So, you know, 
Uh, but let's talk about a price on carbon. And, and Peter, do you see a price on carbon uh, when you're making investments? And is, is that uh, factoring into the asset allocation, capital allocation decisions you're making? Yeah, uh, not in terms necessarily of a price on carbon set as a result of increasingly active, increasingly constraining international architecture. No. We do see a price on carbon emerging as a result of, of national government policy. Australia, Australia would be a, a, a notable example of that. So in terms of our business, and if you like, let me, let me just set aside for a minute the moral case. There is a moral dimension to doing, to doing business. You know, we go home in the evening to our families the same as everybody else. We do not want to run a business which is responsible for, for jeopardizing the, the future of mankind. So there is that moral d- dimension. That's comforting, but yes. Not, it's <laughs> not, but it's not the case for everybody, by the way. Yeah. Is it? Um, uh, no, probably not, yeah. Uh, otherwise, a lot of products that are manufactured and sold would never be manufactured. Yeah. Uh, but I think that um, what, we, what we do see is that, uh, in addition to that moral dimension, is clearly a move to clean energy, which we've pursued very, very significantly in the last 10 years. 10 years ago, we had three people out of 6,000 working on renewable energy. You know, we've now got over 600, and that wouldn't be an, an, you know, an uncommon story. And that's because of policy. It's because of national policy, and we believe that moving to clean energy, amongst other things, is, is, is contributing to de-risking the business over the long term. If you're building conventional power stations, which we do, there is a strong chance that those power stations could still be in operation in beyond the middle of the century. When you're building assets at that cost, and a 1,000 megawatt coal-fired power station probably costs around 1.2 billion US, when you're building assets at that cost with that lifespan, you look ahead to the world as you believe it's going to become, not the world as it is today. And there is no doubt that carbon policy, I believe fundamentally nationally driven, will continue to promote cleaner energy to the detriment of carbon-intensive energy. Peter Greenwood is with China Latin Power Group in in Hong Kong. Let's get uh, others' final word on on price on carbon. Will it happen? Will it have an impact? Julian Wong. Well, at least in in China, you know, the the planners are already planning for it. They are going to experiment with, you know, pilot trading schemes and, and emissions trading and even talking about carbon taxes but I think there's already a fundamental uh, evolution in, in energy pricing that's already underway in China, and that is the movement towards uh, rate-type price controls on natural resources towards a more market-oriented uh, uh, pricing structure. You just take a look at uh, gasoline, for instance. I think there were times last year during the summer where the price of gasoline in China uh, was more expensive than the price of gasoline in the U.S., uh, and, and, and that continues to evolve. They're, they're putting more taxes to it. They're, they're, they're making the price of electricity more expensive uh, over time, phasing that, that over time, because they realize that if they don't correct these inefficiencies in pricing, uh, these scarcities that we've been talking about for the past hour are, are going to bite them really hard. And, and you've seen announcements recently about, about considerations of resource taxes or local pilots, but... I think there's a lot of difficulty because there are serious inflation concerns right now in China that are making kind of increasing the prices on these things very difficult. I mean, just like it was very difficult to talk about raising, you know, putting a tax on gasoline in the U.S., China faces the same types of pressures. Will people take to the streets, riot, because prices, which are already increasing significantly, get too high? So it's a, it's a real challenge. Yeah. It's probably worth me just adding briefly, uh, Greg, that 10 years ago, 
power generation in China was essentially dispatched on a merit order that corresponded to the cost of generation. So you dispatched the cheapest form of generation first and then went up the merit order in terms of pricing. Uh, these days, generation is dispatched in a carbon merit order with the cleanest generation first, then moving steadily up uh, to the highest uh, carbon-emitting types of generation. A couple of interesting ideas here today for the United States, giving government officials clean energy incentives, part of their uh, job performance evaluation, and dispatching energy based on how clean it is, not how costly it is. Stephen, let's get to your last word, and we'll wrap this up. On uh, carbon pricing, if that's going to um, have a significant impact. Uh, I think China will use carbon pricing or differential taxes, which are already using to distribute money from one province to another. I think the gentlemen here have been very, very accurately pointing out China's many, many different things, and Western China is different than Eastern China. And I think they'll make use of carbon pricing, not so much because of their dedication to the environment, but because of their dedication to clean energy, because clean energy is a substitute for non-renewable energy is very finite, and I think that they will be very, very pragmatic in what they do, and they'll probably do it, as they've done most things, very, very effectively. In terms of your comment on inflation, I, I definitely agree, but I think it's much less of a problem than the Chinese would like us to believe. I mean, recall that an 8, 7 or 8 inflation rate, 10 or 12 percent. The Internet Square, yes, huge problem, 30, 40 percent inflation. 6% inflation headed down, I don't think is a, a killer for this society. So again, I think China wants to do whatever they can to make us think that they're not doing quite as well as they're doing. They don't want to appear as an enemy. And I think we have to be very careful and analyze very much more what China does rather than what China said. Well, after end it there, I just would add that uh, similarly in the United States, if we just rely on those who are doing it for the environment, we're not going to get this done. It has to be done by people who are doing it for their own enlightened self-interest, their own economic interests, and that can be a very powerful driver, and, that, and that's fine, people doing uh, these things just for economic technology reasons. I'd like to thank our guests today at Climate One. They've been uh, Peter Greenwood, Executive Director of Strategy for the China Light and Power Group in Hong Kong, Stephen Lieb via video conference, co-author of Red Alert, How China's Growing prosperity threatens the American way of life. Alex Wong, visiting professor at the UC Berkeley School of Law, and Julian Wong, an attorney at Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati in Silicon Valley. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming, and thank you to our audience here at Climate One.